0: Hey, Jonathan here. Today's episode is a cross post from The Business of Authority, which is a show I host with Rochelle Moulton. The topic of this episode is selling and how it doesn't really need to be a dirty word. I know a lot of people hate selling, but in the current economic climate, the current situation, it's going to be more important to sell with empathy than it ever has been before. And that's what this episode is about. I hope you enjoy it. If you'd like to subscribe to The Business of Authority, you can head on over to thebusinessofauthority.com and look for the appropriate button. Okay, on with the show. Hello and welcome to The Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark.
1: And I'm Rochelle Moulton.
0: And today we're going to talk about why selling doesn't have to be a dirty word.
1: That's right. That's right.
0: Selling seems to have a bad rap with most people I talk to.
1: Do you think of like a used car salesman following you around the car lot trying to sell you something?
0: Yep. Pushy person trying to convince you to buy something that you don't need or upsell you to something that you don't want and using uh, intimidation and misdirection and uh, all all of the tactics to be closing. They're going to close you. They're going to close the deal. I had a a friend recently had a, I uh, was thinking about, I think he was thinking about putting solar on his townhouse or something like that. And so they had a guy come over and within 90 seconds, they decided they were not going to give this person a dime. And he was still there two and a half hours.
1: Later. <laughs> you got to love the solar sales guys. <laughs>
0: Couldn't get rid of him. Well, let me go out to the car and call my boss and then be right back. I've got some samples. It went on and on and on, you know, just trying to wear them down. That kind of a story has legs. I mean, he told it to me. Now I'm telling it to you. And now people listening are going to hear it. It creates a bad reputation for the gross kind of selling that like really obnoxious, always be closing, pushy salesperson. If you think about all the things you buy all day long, it's, it's either been marketed or sold to you. I mean, you bought it, so they sold it. You bought it, they sold it. And that's not bad. Like you buy things all the time. I buy things all the time, products and services that are great. They're good investments. I'm happy I did it. And I don't have the buyer's remorse after. So what that tells me, when you look at the percentages, I mean, I can't remember the last time that I had to directly deal with a pushy salesperson. What that means to me, I think if you think about it, is that 90% of the things that are sold to you are not done in this gross way but the the bad apples so to speak it kind of get all the attention the used car salesman with the like plaid jacket right like in the white belt and white shoes it's like it somehow captured our consciousness and it's like I don't want to be like that I don't want to be like that well okay be like the the sellers of the 99% of the other things that you buy and do gracious marketing And connect with people who are actually going to benefit from your product or service, so on and so forth. So it's kind of like whenever I'm working with someone, I feel like I need to detoxify them from, they need to detox. and, and, And a lot of times I will consciously avoid using either the words marketing and sales, marketing or sales, and just talk about the activities that are involved. And they don't even realize that they're marketing. Like, whoops, I marketed. You know, whoops, I sold something. So we'll talk about things like negotiation. People don't mind talking about negotiation. People don't mind talking about blogging. People don't mind talking about podcasting. People don't mind talking about uh, sending email to people or speaking at conferences. These are all marketing activities, but they don't, I don't want to be a marketer. Okay, well, just just do these things, right? So So today's conversation is going to sort of circle around that.
1: It just reminds me when I was in a a big firm, we sold things, right? And we didn't have anybody who just sold things. You did things, you were a consultant, and you sold the work that you did. But so what would happen is nobody would ever use the word sell. And you would never hear selling. It was always marketing, What kind of marketing are you doing? And I'm thinking, "Mm, that's not marketing, that's selling. But in order to get people, especially highly technical people, to get into the idea of selling their services, we had to talk about it as marketing. It still makes me laugh when I think about it. But I mean, what difference does it make, really, what you call it? It's the activities that you do that are going to get the result that you you want, and it's going to keep your clients happy, too.
0: It seems to me, from my experience, that it's, ra- it's wrapped up in people's identity and they don't want to feel like that's part of their identity because it has such a, has such a negative connotation. But if you're in business and you're not s- making any sales, you're not going to be in business for very long. And it's pretty arrogant to think that you're just going to sit around and do nothing and people are going to show up and give you money. So no, it's not going to happen. And it sometimes at first it feels like it's going to happen or it does kind of happen at first because when you first go solo, your network sends work your way because you've got this powerful story about telling your boss that they can take the job and shove it. And now I'm going to go, I'm going to go out on my own. And the story gets around a little bit. And for a little while you magically get, you can magically get clients. And then like 18 months in, you're just another freelancer, just another consultant and uh, you don't have any leads. <laughs> and it's like, hmm. Really, this is a framing exercise because the we've talked about all of these things ad nauseum in the past. Things like, um, you know, inbound marketing types of activities, content marketing, edu- educational content marketing. We t- You know, sharing your expertise, working in public. These are all marketing activities or they function as marketing activities even if you don't think of them like that. I feel like the whole air quotes, trick to it is just thinking about how can I help the most people and continue to be able to help the most people by funding that mission. If you think about it like funding your mission instead of taking their money, then it it changes people's minds about it. It happens to me over and over. I'm like, you're not trying to take people's money. You're trying to fund your mission so you can keep helping more people. So if you... If you don't want to talk about marketing, you don't want to think about it like that. Just go into the world and help as many people as you can. And it's going to be in a, in your area of expertise, whatever your big idea is or your purpose or your mission or whatever the thing is that you're trying to get into the world, the thing that you feel that you're an authority about. And you take that message and you just deliver it to as many people as you can. And, you know, you have to eat. So you've got to have some sort of income stream coming from that. So the fund your mission thing has helped a lot of people that I work with kind of calm down, if you will, sort of like talk, them, talk them off the ledge and think, think of it that, in that way.
1: Well, you know, when you said early on, you said take their money. To me, sales isn't taking. Sales is an exchange. And so you're exchanging your wisdom or something you've created, a product, a productized service for money. Right, it's an exchange. You're not taking; you're giving. It's mutual, and I think that I don't know. I just try to rise above all that. I, I've never seen myself as the used car salesman or the the bad life insurance salesman, right? Because the good ones, you just pull you in, and before you know it, you're signing on the dotted line, but you're happy about it. The important thing is to remember that this is a mindset. That you are, all of us are delivering something that's of value and the marketplace is going to put a value on that, right? I don't think a hard sell technique is going to make clients buy maybe here and there, but then they'll be so remorseful. It will wind up costing you more in bad will than it would have just not to have sold to that person.
0: Mm-hmm. It's a short term scorched earth approach.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's not, I mean, that's not what we're talking about here.
0: no. So I wanna pick up on an idea that you just raised, which is uh, mutual profit. for folks who are new to thinking about, especially value pricing, it's really hard for them to feel like they're not taking people's money. Because you are taking someone's money, but you're giving giving a value that exceeds that money or the value that they placed on the money, because that's not exactly the same thing, giving that back to them. So it's like the double thank you experience. So you go to a cafe, you go to your coffee shop, you give somebody a few bucks for a coffee, they give you the coffee, and what happens? You both say thank you. Why does that happen? Isn't that weird? You both say thank you. Nobody, usually people don't say you're welcome. It's like, thanks, thanks. Well, guess what? Especially if it's the owner of the cafe. Like the cafe in my building, the owner is the like the only person there. She does not say you're welcome. She says thank you. Why? Because you have... You have each exchanged something for something that's more valuable to the other person. So you, you both profited. The story I tell about the two different color balloons, like you know, the little girl trades a green balloon for a red balloon with the little boy. And it's like, why do they trade? It's not because one balloon cost more to make, it's because one of them likes the other color better and the other one likes the other color better. So they They trade the two balloons. They both profited because they're more happy because they have a thing that they value more than the thing they gave away. Both people value the thing they have now more than the thing they gave away. So it's it's really easy to think about this in terms of trading physical things like balloons or like uh, when, you you know, little kid, one time I traded a jackknife for a necklace or, you know, like it's really easy to be like, yeah, you know, do you want to trade? And people are like, yes or no. And and the trade's only going to happen if both people value the other thing more than the thing they have. And there's absolutely no difference between trading a jackknife for a necklace than there is for trading $250,000 for a WordPress site. The person who's got the $250,000 would rather have the WordPress site. And the person who's capable of making the WordPress site would rather have the $250,000 than the time it takes him to build it. It's like it's the exact same thing on a different scale. But since money is involved and since the money only flowing in one direction, people have a tendency to forget that the thing that they're delivering, assuming that the other person's happy with it at the end of the day, is worth more than the money, even if it's a seemingly insane amount of money. So, you know, for, you know, quarter million for a WordPress site sounds like a lot, but I, I know people that do it, so... I think if you, if you can internalize the idea of mutual profit and you only get into trades where you believe that the person on the other side of the fence, the one who's sending the money your way is going to be glad that they did at the end, then how can you, how can you feel bad about that? I I don't think there's any way to feel bad about that.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny, it it just made me think of, I've had people where I've had a new business discussion with them where we thought maybe we'd want to work together and I could feel them hanging on by their fingernails to their business. And, you know, and I've said to them, listen, I I would love to work with you. Yes, I do believe I can help you if, if that's in fact the case, but I don't think you're in a place to do this right now, because if you're going into this, you know, literally on your last dime this is not going to be a process that's going to feel good to you. It's going to be highly stressful, and you're going to have expectations of everything happening instantly. And I can't promise that. And, and all of a sudden, you know, they look at it differently. Or the gentleman I, who was thinking about starting a consulting firm, and I said, well, how much, how much runway do you have? How long can you go until your first client? And he, I could hear him clicking, like checking his bank account. And he came back and he said, 30 days. like no 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 and this is somebody with a lot of overhead no
0: I used to do my coaching program monthly and I switched it to six months at a time because having folks pay for it monthly I know gave the sort of an expectation that something was going to happen in the first month and almost never does something happen in the first month usually you don't start to get any kind of traction for three months so yeah, I totally agree. So if you're talking to the person and and through this sort of, I mean, this all goes back to everything we talk about, you know, you're having this why conversation with them, you're trying to talk them out of working with you, convince me, potential client, that this is going to be a good fit for you. Like, why are you planning on spending all this money with me? Why would you invest all this money with me? What do you, I don't see what you're going to get out of it. What are you going to get out of it? And make them tell you what they think they're going to get out of it. And then I'll I'll sort of make a judgment call about whether, how confident I am that I can do it within the constraints of their situation. And I'll either, yeah, I might say, I don't don't think I'm the right person for this. Sometimes I say, I think you're being unrealistic. I don't think anyone can deliver that. Uh, Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't know anybody that can deliver that. Or I might say, "Mm, like you said, you know, if this is a Hail Mary for you, I think what you're looking for is actually something different. I think you need to do this maybe it's a lower price thing maybe it's like here you should just read my book you don't you're not ready for for like uh, an intense one-on-one you don't have enough time to even devote to the things that I would tell you to do so on and so forth here's another way to another way to think about it in the mutual profit thing if you are obsessed with delivering high customer satisfaction It gets tricky with these long projects, because if you're engaged in this project for a long time, lots of things can change. It's different than selling a lamp that you could just return. But if you've got these long projects that are three, six, nine months or longer, I, I, as a defense mechanism, I want to be really, really clear on what is going to satisfy them. What is the goal that they're trying to achieve? What does a home run look like? How realistic do I think it is for them to want that? how realistic is it that I might be able to achieve it? What's, what do I guess is the possibility? And then I'm, that's what I price. I price the, you know, discounted for risk as Blarens would say, you know, what's the value of that outcome? And I'll think, yeah, I think I can deliver that outcome. What's it worth to them? It's probably worth about this much, uh, say a million dollars. And if I discount that to hundred thousand, you know, to kind of like, um, because I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure, and that would be a great investment for them. If I can do it for $10,000 and I can charge $100,000 and they're going to make a million if we hit a home run, it's fair, you know, spreading the risk around, spreading the profit around. Thinking about the customer satisfaction forces you early on to figure out what the goal is. Otherwise, it's impossible to satisfy them.
1: Yes. Yes. You know what? That's the difference between what we were talking about at the beginning and a consultant on their way to becoming an authority. That's the difference. Don't you think?
0: It all sounds the same to me. Like
1: The always always be closing person wants to close a deal to close the deal. They don't care if you drive off in a red Chevy station wagon or a white BMW sedan, right? They're caring about it's the hit they get from the transaction, it's like, yes, I sold one. Yes, good. Off to the next one, you know, versus what the the client or the customer really wants to achieve. And you stay, on some level, you stay connected to that outcome. It's, it's I think it's hard to go wrong that way because it's, I, I can't think of any consultant who would, well, actually, I just thought of one, but most consultants... <laughs> What you want to do is you want to track with your client through the process, especially those longer ones. And so you're always a good consultant is always going back and forth saying, how, how are we doing? Even if they're not asking the client directly, they're saying, how are, how are we tracking? How, are, how far have we gotten um, versus where we said we would be? What results have we achieved on an interim basis? Is the deadline still doable? Is the outcome still doable. You know, you're always, you're attuned to that. It's almost like a dance.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I talk about this. This is another one of the things that I talk about in the preliminary why conversation, sort of like that sort of get to know you meeting where you're deciding if uh, there's a good fit, find a progress metric, not just the home run. We need to find something that allows us to steer the car along the way and know that we're making progress. So I was thinking about this the other day, like, like I'm coming up for a karate test. And, and assuming I don't get injured and assuming I show up, the, the teachers already know whether or not I'm going to pass. Because part of, being, part of doing it is that you have to show up. I can't, I can't just be like, okay, I'll see you in six months for my next test. I'm going to practice at home. I've got, I know all the the material is I bought the book or whatever. I'm going to, I'm just going to show up and take the test. And if I pass, I pass. If I don't, I don't, it doesn't work like that. Part of the training is showing up on a regular basis. Like that's part of it. And, and I think that's true for consulting. It's, you know, I know it's, it's a sort of trope in the designer community to sort of go away and come back and have the big reveal at the end. I think that's a setting yourself up for a huge amount of risk. Because you're leaving the client out of all of the decision making not I don't want the client involved in the decision making, but I do want the client involved along the way With the progress So I want them in little bits. I want to bring them along and of course they're going to weigh in at certain times I don't mean they shouldn't be involved in the decisions at all, but it's just w- w- Like pile something on them at the end and then try and convince them that it was good and all the decisions you made along the way I think is very very risky Instead, I would rather say, you know, come up with progress metrics so that there there should be no surprise at the end. Just like my karate test, there's going to be no surprise at the end. I I would bet you I could choke on that test and I know I won't because I've been putting the time in, but I could probably choke and they'd still pass me or they'd give me a second chance because they know I know the stuff. So it's like there's no, there should be no surprise. There should be no surprise whatsoever.
1: It's a really interesting way to think about it. I, I think you're right. There shouldn't be any surprises, but the client does have to be engaged along the way. And then the other piece, especially if if you're working one-to-one with someone, is you have to know that the client is going to do the work that only they can do. I'm sure we've all done this where we've been involved with the client and we've created some sort of recommendation and then off we go and it just sits there. It doesn't get implemented. Nothing happens. I mean, that's not good for anybody. It's bad for the consultant. It's bad for the client. So it's that one of the things I look for when I'm first talking with a potential client is do they have the will and the commitment to do what's required? Because I I can't, there's things that I can't do for them that they have to do for themselves. I can guide them. I can give them advice. I can help them. I can get them started. I can help them on the back end, but I can't actually do the work for them. And one of my favorite clients, what I love about him is he's always doing the work. I mean, he never hesitates. I've never known him to miss a deadline ever. How many people can you say that about? He's a great client. And I think one of the reasons he's so successful is because he does have the will and he does have the commitment and he, and he does the work. And then he surrounds himself with people who can help him. So he's not afraid to buy or to be sold, if you will, but then he does the work.
0: And the way that that relates is that we're talking about sort of our, we're both talking about their sort of intake process that kind of like, are we a good fit for this? On my intake form, how many hours a week can you devote to the assignments I'm going to be giving you? If it's less than 10, then I, I can't help you. Like I can tell you all the same things I told the person before you, but it's not going to work for you because you don't have enough time to implement anything. If you're picky about who you work with, it's not even about being picky. It's more like, am I confident that I can deliver results way over and above the amount of money this person's investing in me? And if, if my answer to that is shaky, I'm going to try and downsell them or, or send them to someone else or talk them out of doing anything before some preparatory steps. Because again, like my whole, my whole goal is to satisfy the customers and have them be delighted and be like, like I always say, like, I want them to build a statue of me outside of their, like this person changed our business. Like when that happens, it's the best. And so I want to set myself up for that from the beginning. So do I sell to them? Yeah, yeah, yes. I mean, technically I have to get, I give them a proposal or I send them to a sales page and they have to sign on the dotted line. Like, yeah, I sold them. But that point in the, in the process where you've done all this marketing, you've attracted some leads who think that you might have something of value to them, you get into a conversation or they engage with your content or they buy your book or some low tier things That, you know, there's no conversation, so it doesn't feel like there's any sales. But of course there is. I've got stuff written on the page where you click the Buy Now button, and that's salesy. It's salesy in the sense like, here's the kind of person who should read this book. If you have problems like these, you're going to like this book. If you don't have problems like these, you don't need this book. It's almost like the bad kind of sales is inherently dishonest. And the, the good kind of sales is inherently sort of customer satisfaction focused. Cause think about what that does for you. Cause like if you're constantly satisfied, delighting beyond satisfying, if you're constantly delighting a big portion of people who are either buying your book or your coaching or your speaking engagements or whatever, what do they do? They turn around and tell other people. <laughs> it's like, it feels like your marketing is sort of taking care of itself. You get more word of mouth, uh, in person over email and social media And it just sort of magically – and it does start start to magically happen that more better clients come your way because the word is getting around among the people that you seek to serve, as Seth Godin would say.
1: Somewhere in the middle of that, you said something that that sparked a thought, which is sort of like a yes if. In other words, when you're talking with someone and deciding whether or not you're going to work together, you come to a point, I think, where you go – Yes, there is a problem here that I can help solve. And you you go through that exercise. But then there's an if, and that's where the conditions come in. And the the if could be, uh, like you said, the amount of time that they have to devote to something, right? The if could be, I need you to do this amount of work in this time frame, and then you have to have another week after that to do X. I mean, there's, there's some conditions around that. And I think that a lot of us have conditions that we don't write down. And there are conditions about chemistry with the person, um, obviously buying a book that doesn't matter um buying a productized service might not matter but when you're doing uh one-to-one services it does matter and so you you after a while your ear is probably attuned to the people who are your best fits you know your sweet spot clients and who those are and what conditions have to exist for you to do your best work i mean i feel like that's when a consultant figures that out it's like the bell rings and you can't unring it anymore you can't go back and work with somebody who doesn't fit in your in your parameter of of genius
0: mhm yeah michael Port talks about that a lot at the beginning of book yourself solid where his his approach and he's got a very uh, gentle if you will approach to oh
1: you sales. said gentle <laughs> you said gentle
0: <laughs> I, I swear i would i have it I on tape <laughs> Uh, but he talks at the beginning about about how to make the transition from a conversation into a more serious, you know, an ask, an ask, a suggestion that you might w- want to work. You know that that hey, person I'm talking to, I want to let you know that essentially you're my ideal kind of client, you're my ideal kind of um, customer, and th- here are the reasons why. And sort of that that's his pivot in the conversation from sort of marketing to sales is that he would say the way that he suggests that people do it is to say, you know, Alice, you are the perfect customer for me uh, for these reasons. And I believe that I could help you with these things if you wanted to make an investment of of money and time that, you know, and if you can do that, then I'm very confident that you could get some of these results that you're looking for. And like you said, you can't unsee it. Like once you know, what's the opposite of a red flag? It's like the the good signs, the green lights on someone that you're like, you just see them all. You're like, this person's perfect. You know, we would, we would click. They're exactly at the, at the right, they have the right attitude. They're at the right level of business development. The conditions are perfect as the flight of the Concord say. The thing that's happening though is that takes time to get there it takes time to recognize those things but you're never going to recognize them if you're not looking for them so you know if you're not already looking for those things look for them look back to the clients that have been just huge home runs for you and then once you get there the red flags on the clients that aren't a good fit are going to be even redder and the green lights are going to be even greener and you'll it makes it easier for you to satisfy the clients that you do take on because just all of the tricky communication latency and, and bad assumptions and all of, you know, faulty assumptions and all of those things, they magically disappear because you click with this person and it makes everything so much easier and you it makes it easier for you to deliver results. And what does that mean? It means your costs are lower. your Your psychic costs, your time costs, Any outside investments that you need to make in support software support uh, Like contractors or whatever it is that you do It makes every makes your your side of the engagement more profitable Because you can charge the same price you would charge anybody else But you're working with someone who's really easy to work with and then on their side of the fence same thing You know if you're working with if you are hiring someone to help you with a thing and they're really easy to work with and you just click, it makes it easier for them too. So it's good all the way around, but you do have to start looking for it to, to begin to identify these things. Yeah. I love, I love that. Yes. If that's great. It's like this list of conditions that need to exist.
1: And, and, or you could say no, but, but I like a yes, if better, you know, tell me (laughs) what you are going to do, not what you won't. But I keep thinking when, when we're talking about this, we're, we're also hitting on the whole idea of niching and finding your sweet spot client. And those two things are related, right? Because your niche could be based on who that client is. It starts to get really fascinating. So you you can do gentle selling and I laughed about that because Jonathan insisted we could not call this episode gentle selling (laughs) because he could not say that word, but he did. I don't
0: I don't do anything gently.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thirty minutes in, you did it. But but then then you can do gentle selling. And I think of gentle selling as kind of the things we've talked about, but also you can do gentle selling in emails. You know, when you know who your target is, you can you can do those those gentle, um I almost said push. I don't think you can push gently, but a nudge, <laughs> a gentle nudge. Um there's all sorts of ways. Nudging is good. Yeah.
0: I can get behind nudging, nudge selling. There you go. That's what the title should have been. Nudge selling.
1: Nudge selling, there you go.
0: Yeah, that that always be closing thing really rubs me the wrong way. I, I, I see it more as always be teaching or always be helping. Here's another book. I just mentioned Book Yourself Solid, but another one is called uh, The Secret of Selling Anything. I think I always get the title wrong. It's something like that by Harry Brown, The Secret of Selling Anything and, or How to Sell Anything, something like that. I'll link to it in the show notes. But it is... it is it For anybody who is allergic to the idea of sales, I've never come across a book that was... It's short. It's clear. It's, it's just perfect for people who or just don't want to sell. They just feel like they don't want to sell. This, this book is, and it's from the sixties. It's just timeless and excellent. It's just amazing. It's an amazing book. It will change your mind. If you read this book and you still think you can't do sales, go get a job because you're just, (laughs) it's just not going to work. So
1: yes, you have to have the right mindset with all of this. And and the mindset starts with that you have something to offer that's valuable. Mm -hmm. And same thing, if you don't think you do, you're gonna have a hard time finding a job too, if that's the case. But you've got, you have to believe in yourself, your wisdom, the way you provide your services and and how you uh, consult and produce work for your client. I mean, that's, to me, that's consulting 101. If you don't have that, you're in the wrong profession.
0: Yeah. I I say to my coaching students all the time, like, if you're shy about marketing yourself, it means you don't believe in what you offer. Because if you believed in what you offered, then you'd be shouting it from the rooftops because you know that it's going to help people and that it's going to hurt them. It's going to help them more than the money it's going to cost to buy it. I'll say that again. If you believe in your products and services, you don't feel uncomfortable letting people who need it know about it it's like hey i see you're drowning over there but i don't want to <laughs> interrupt you with this life preserver <laughs> you know you need to you need to let me know that you know it's like if you see someone drowning and you have a life preserver you want to let them it's know your about duty. it
1: think of it that way it's your yeah, duty it's your moral yeah, obligation that's right
0: and i've heard other i've heard other people i think um, i think david cb i'm not sure who but I, i've heard other people say that you're stealing from people by not letting them know about this valuable thing that you have that would be profitable to them. It's like stealing the profits from them. And to me, it's a bridge too far for me to to, even me to say that because I don't think it actually resonates with people, but it's, it's the flip side of the coin. It's like if you've got this, if you've got something worth a million dollars to somebody and it only costs them a hundred thousand and you're picky about who you work with and you know that you're you're highly confident that it's going to work for this particular person that you're talking to at a cocktail party, You owe it to them to tell them about it, which is a foreign concept to a lot of people. But if you believe in what you offer and you have confidence and you know who your green light client is and you met one, (laughs) they've got the expensive problem. What are you going to do? Not tell them. Imagine if they find out six months later, why didn't you tell me that you did this? I've been looking for someone to do this and we were talking and I told you and you didn't even tell me. Yeah. Right? Like that's the flip side.
1: It's you know you don't want to be the world's best kept secret because it's a that's a mm. slow road to richness. Very very <laughs> slow.
0: Yeah. Yep. All right, I think the horse is I think the horse is down.
1: <laughs> Do we have Do to kill we... something again?
0: <laughs> I know.
1: Well, I think I think we've we've made the case that selling doesn't have to be a dirty word.
0: Right. Yeah, and if we haven't, then go find the Harry Brown book. Go to the show notes and find the link. I, the title is too generic for me to remember, but it's something like The Secret to Selling Anything. And uh, and there'll be a link to it in the show notes. I cannot recommend it more highly. If there's one book that you read on sales, make it this one. It's the most... Okay, here's the word that we were struggling for. Not gentle, it's humane. It's the most humane oh,
1: version there of you sales go.
0: that I've, I've ever... I mean, you don't need another book after this one. so for sales it's great uh cool all right anything else
1: no i think that's it
0: all right well that's it for this week i'm jonathan stark
1: and i'm richelle Moulton.
0: and we hope hey jonathan again do you have questions about how to improve your business things like value pricing your work instead of billing for your time or positioning yourself as the go-to person in your space or maybe productizing your services so you never have to have another awkward sales call or spend hours writing another custom proposal. Book a one-on-one coaching call with me and get answers to these questions and others in the time it takes you to get ready for work in the morning. Best of all, you're covered by my 100% satisfaction guarantee. If at the end of the call you don't feel like it was worth it, just say the word and I'll refund your purchase in full. To book your one-on-one coaching call, go to jonathanstark.com slash call. C-A-L-L. That URL again is JonathanStark.com slash call. Hope to see you there.